From the WUFT Newsroom in Gainesville, Florida, I'm Ethan Majok. Welcome to The Point. As summer winds down, we've been away from the podcast world and busy getting ready to launch a few fall projects. We'll tell you about two of them later in today's show. But first, our attention, much like the nation's, has been consumed the past few weeks with the aftermath of racial tension in Charlottesville, Virginia. That tension quickly made its way to Gainesville, where white supremacist leader Richard Spencer planned to speak on the University of Florida campus. This week, the university heard President Kent Fox speak publicly for the first time since he announced the school would not accommodate Spencer's visit. It was Fox's annual State of the University address, and he opened with a statement about the decision to not allow a white supremacist event on UF's campus. It's about a minute. This has been an unusual start of a new academic year, with the typical enthusiasm overshadowed by the white supremacist violence in Charlottesville less than two weeks ago, and the concerns about the possibility of such an event right here on our own campus. As you no doubt are aware, we received a request to reserve space for a speaking event featuring white supremacist leader Richard Spencer. Spencer's beliefs are appalling, and I denounce his racist and hateful claims. However, we denied the request not based on those words of his, but rather the real threats of violence and injury as occurred in Charlottesville and as was threatened here in Gainesville. Across the country, Racists are attempting to use public university campuses to push their dark agenda. And I want to state forcefully that we are institutions that every day exemplify the exact opposite of that agenda. We are places where people of every religion, background, race, gender, sexuality, and other differences not only exist together peacefully, but also we celebrate our differences. We find common ground and ultimately, we experience friendship and love for one another. He then spoke for 45 minutes, touching on topics such as the incoming student class and an improving student-to-faculty ratio. Fox concluded with a Q&A, and you can probably guess what topic several people in the university community still had in mind. Uh, Jack Machulski, the Herbert Wertheim College of Engineering. You had mentioned the... Um, a speaker that was going to speak here. Yes. And I think I saw in the uh, alligator during the summer that it may not be the, the last word that they may try to uh, use legal means to try to get on campus. What is the latest on that? Yes, we, um, the general counsel's here, so she can correct me, but as of yesterday, uh, they had not uh, filed suit to, to allow, to force us to, uh, to allow uh, Richard Spencer to come, to come to campus. And as far as we know, um, none of the other universities, a number of other universities have done the same thing since then. Florida A&M was the very first, we were the second. Uh, they had been scheduled before us, uh, but many others, uh, Penn State and Michigan State and others have also done the same. Um, I do want all of you to know though that, um, as I said, and I was very sincere, uh, we, do not ban hate speech on campus from the public. And our students and our employees uh, believe that I have the power to ban hate speech. We, we, that is allowed by the First Amendment. Um, so you indeed can 
put a swastika on your jacket and go to Turlington Plaza and march around if you want to and say horrific things, things that will cause me to, to denounce what you say if you say them. Um, but uh, we, uh, we, just by the First Amendment, because we're a public institution and we're therefore an agent of the government, cannot censor speech. Um, and, and as I said, and I consistently say, it was not the words that caused us to uh, deny their access. It was the real threats uh, and, uh, and the violence that we saw uh, enacted just a few days before that that caused us to do that. But under a different set of circumstances, uh, many of you would be s sending me letters saying, how come you're not banning him from, or that, some organization from campus? So um, I'm praying that they go to some other campus. <laughs> Hi, yes. I'm Hazel Levy um, from the College of Medicine of Pediatrics. And I just was wondering if um, there was any plan to sort of address the idea that, yes, we allow <clears throat> hate speech here, but in allowing hate speech, if we were, if you call it allow, that there is more danger to some of the people of our community than others? you know, like our marginalized um, faculty staff, our people of color, our Jewish um, faculty staff students. I work at the College of Medicine, so there's all kinds of people yeah. that are there. And I wonder if there's any thought going on about how we will address those particular communities. I don't think that we should always be talking about how it affects us all, because it actually affects different people in a more violent way. Yeah, that's a very excellent point, and I, I think we're, we, um, I, I can't give you specific plans, but I think it's, depending on the incident, it affects different groups in just dramatically different ways, um, in ways that cause them to not be able to function well. Um, uh, I've had almost all segments of our student body, uh, including the, our Muslims in our community, that uh, are in great fear, not necessarily for the physical violence, uh, but for the way, the trends that they see and the way that they're being treated. And I think that's a very good point that uh, whether it's a swastika or whether it's a noose or whether it's words, uh, they affect different groups in dramatically different ways and, and we have to support those people uh, in a proportionate amount of ways, I think, to, to overcome that. Okay, so the, uh, regarding this internal student uh, decline, Excuse me. Um, Excuse me. Oh, this young girl from uh, College of uh, um, Liberal Arts and, and Science, um, Astronomy. Um, so this internal student decline you mentioned that is also the seem to be the, the entire United States yes. kind of a phenomenon. Do you know what's the main cause of that? You know, is there any consensus about you know what caused that? And we may be able to do something make dif you know, make difference next year, for example. Right. Uh, I'm not going to make political statements, but but I do believe <laughs> it is. I, as I said, I think we have to proclaim, we have to be vocal. In, in the past, uh, we could be silent and the world's very best students would just come here. They would apply uh, and they would come if we admitted them. Um, that's no longer the case. We have to, to, I believe, actively recruit and have the message that they're welcome at our university, they're welcome in our community, and they're welcome in our, in our society and they have a path to their career uh, and that they can get up 
a green card, they can get a permanent residency. Mm -hmm. I, th I think all of that has to be said by all of us, not just those in the university community, but all of us. And, and I just, it's, I cannot overstate how important it is, particularly in certain disciplines, particularly in certain disciplines. Uh -huh. Most of that decline that I described in the international student body, it affected almost all our colleges, not all, but almost all, but it affected uh, engineering more than others. Uh, and it was more uh, the decline in students from India. So it wasn't Iraq or Iran or some other country, but it was students from India. So I just think we has, have to counter, counter the perception that they're not welcome. Um, and it's part of the language of, of, our, of our society. So that's it. So the, the other thing is one thing could do is, uh, um, you know, this summer I even tried to help some international students you know, doing research. So it's something our university might be on the thing about. You know, as a university level, we can organize more like a summer school for international students to come here, they know our school. So then it might be help them uh, tremendously understand the, you know, the, the greatness of this school. So they might be applying later, you know. So that might be something we can think about, you know, strategy-wise. Yep. And I would encourage us, um, there are small things each of us can do. Um, so for example, as these students, they're now here, they've been here, many of them, uh, a week or more. Uh, be sure you convey to them how, how much we appreciate them being here. Um, Dean Leo Villalone and I will be having a, a reception for, for all of them. And, uh, and that's part of the reason for that, is just to convey how grateful we are. And that message spreads to their classmates and to others uh, back in their home countries. Really important to you all, I think, for our nation's future. Yes. Good afternoon, Dr. Fox. Debbie Nissler, IFAS Extension, uh, County Operations, specifically 4-H Youth Development. Um, I appreciate your very considerate uh, attention to our potential speakers as they come on campus and the height that we've kind of seen nationally. One of the things that I don't think we've talked about and what I would really like to know is as we look at positive civil discourse, we talk about free speech, but we don't talk about having that speech. How do we em empower our mm -hmm. students and faculty on campus mm -hmm. to have those tough conversations? And I think it's more than just letting, telling them that they can, but I think it's preparing students and faculty to have those difficult conversations and walk away friends or at yeah. least colleagues. Yeah. So can you address that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think it's a great point. Um, the, uh, if I remember correctly, in the student code of conduct, there are statements about this, that this is something we, we value, that we will have discourse in which we disagree on principles, this is amongst our students, uh, but do it in a way that is respectful to one another and we're open to learning uh, from, from one another. Um, now how to do that in a way that, uh, in which you're respectful of, of the background that that person comes from, because what I think is respectful, you, you may not perceive that or, or vice versa. So, so I think that's really context specific and it is something we as faculty, you all as faculty, I think particularly in areas where there's discussion, where you're, where you're, you're teaching courses on, on some of these great issues that the society is facing, uh, we as faculty can, can add to that, we can guide that. Um, I certainly don't have a set of bullets how to do that. I'm, I'm learning myself um, as I engage with our students in different conversations just where they feel passionately about something and I, I may have a different perspective. But, but I do think we as faculty can add to that and hopefully add to it at a national level because at the national level it's desperately needed. Um, how do we communicate? It, one of my great fears of, 
of higher ed, higher ed, is that we're, we are becoming more insular. It's not that the world is just not listening to us, but we're talking to ourselves. And so I think learning how, particularly with our students, for the students educating them about how to have these conversations and learn from each other. You know, it's one thing to have a diverse community. It's another thing to benefit from that diverse community. And we need that next step. Uh, but we also, I believe, need to figure out as, as faculty who are educated and, and often have higher economic means than other parts of the community, how do we engage with them? How do we, how do we have a positive influence on society? Because clearly the world needs, I think, what you all teach and what you know, um, but it's unclear whether they're making that difference. And I, I don't have great wisdom in this, but I do think we, we should in whatever ways. Good afternoon. Yes. I'm Ianessa Humbert. I'm an associate professor in speech language hearing sciences. And uh, when you were talking, uh, you reminded me of something that might be a solution to mm. that problem. Um, over the years, because I'm both brown and female, I've been tapped to be in several diversity initiatives, not here at UF, but while I was at Hopkins and other places. And um, one thing I noticed is in the women's leadership program, there are a lot of women. In the diversity groups, there are a lot of people who are not white. So as a woman, if I'm one of the only women in an apartment of men, for instance, I need to learn how to interact with whoever they're saying I'm not doing a good job of interacting with. But the reverse is true as well. So how do we get a lot of these initiatives, be they female-specific or uh, religion-specific, to have the majority for whatever that analogous group is? For instance, I've benefited greatly from learning from folks in the LGBT community about how to do the right things, not do the right things, just learn how to interact in general. As someone who is not in that community, that was helpful for mm -hmm. me. But no one's tapping me to join those groups. Same thing with religious minorities. I happen to be Christian, so nobody's saying, come on out to our you know, Jewish fellowship. That's what I need to go. I need to go to those probably more than I need to go to things about women, because I certainly know how to be a woman in a male-dominated world. So I'm wondering if we can make it so that these diversity initiatives yeah. include the folks who we'll be interacting with. I think it's a wonderful point. You know, my own discipline is one that's very uh, engineering, it's, it's, it's less diverse than probably any other discipline and, and I think that's, I've seen that myself demonstrated many times where I need to uh, learn uh, more than those that are diverse. So I think for all of us it's a good, 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 wonderful point. I'm turning over here because I've already heard from the astronomer. Yes. Uh, Judy Callahan from the Warrington College of Business. and. One of the things I've been trying to do since February, because I've had this truly felt that the problem is listening, I'm working off of her, is there's a, there's a documentary called An Accidental Courtesy, and it's about a gentleman who, a black gentleman who never experienced racism until he came back to the United States. His parents were in um, government service, and when he came to the United States, that was the first time he experienced it. And he has spent his entire life asking the question of the Ku Klux Klan and other hate groups, why do you hate me when you don't even know me? Literally since he was in high school. And I happened to go to high school with him, so he was one of three blacks in this very white high school that we attended, and we still stay in touch. You know, how do we get, or how do we get the student government, because I've made many pleas, he would be a great speaker, because really what it's about is listening. Um, we have ceased to become sounding boards and we've become echo chambers.
While Richard Spencer and his allies last week threatened legal action against the University of Florida, the school hasn't had to actually defend itself in court quite yet. We'll have more on that story in the coming weeks. One morning last month, we asked in our newsletter for stories from Vietnam veterans. Almost immediately, we heard from more than a dozen, and since then, I've been traveling around our coverage area recording the stories of those former servicemen, many of whom saw more than they should have at such a young age. The reason we're sharing their recollections now is that the Vietnam War is back in the national spotlight with a 10-part PBS series by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. It's set to air next month on your local public television station. Likewise, we're getting set to publish oral histories with at least 20 men who served in Southeast Asia in the 1960s and who now call our area their home. We've put together a sample this week of some of what you'll hear. My name is Alan Davis. George Vernon Guy. Scott Camille. James Thomas Hennessy Jr. Harvey Goldstein. Forrest Hope. David Colburn. David Gold. Ron Opliger. Tom Curtis. Jim Lynch. Aaron Gary Newman. I go by Gary. The first thing that strikes you is uh, the smell and the heat and the humidity. And flying along at 100 knots, inches above tree levels with your feet hanging out was exhilarating. When I went there, it was to stop communism. Everybody was anxious. Everybody had been watching Vietnam on television. Out in the jungle with a gun and a bunch of things on your back. I'm in a place where it's people's job to kill me. Things you don't want to see or don't care to talk about. Our team got hit and I lost my best friend. Some of this I'm not ready to talk about. Being in combat, but to watch your best friend, you're just talking to him and that quick, it's over. I just couldn't couldn't deal with it. I murdered a man who was just a farmer. The war was extremely hard on these men, and the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong were not lighting up. Many of my friends for many years didn't know I had this history. Many of my family sort of disowned me and labeled me, you know, crazy for my experiences. The way that I deal with it was just held everything inside. I held inside what I saw, what I went through, what I did. I'm still holding in most of that. War does not help anybody. No one. No one comes back the same person. We were given a job to do, and we did our job. Couldn't figure out why uh, people were against us. I got diagnosed with cancer, Agent Orange. Somehow I was exposed to Agent Orange while in Vietnam. It's mental malaria. It's in your system, just like malaria is, and every once in a while you'll have an episode where you have sweats in that. That's what it's all about, is you got to... You can't hold in forever. Kind of look back now on it and shake our heads and say, what the hell is that all about? Vietnam, in my opinion, should never have happened. Vietnam was a war, you know, in hindsight, that apparently we, we fought and we didn't raise taxes to pay. I mean, that's crazy. The military never lost a battle. The military never lost the war. We remain silent too long. It's not going to happen anymore. We don't want to be quiet. We want to tell you our stories. While we're still finishing up the reporting process with those who served in Vietnam, our newsroom recently completed a project that took all summer. The idea was simple. Reporters wanted to answer this question. Who and what makes Gainesville the place it is? This week, we shared 13 different stories of people living here, and in the coming weeks, you'll hear from them. Today, we begin with the eldest one featured. His name is Bob Gichet, and reporter Fabiana Otero has his story. 
I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The crowd recited the Pledge of Allegiance led by Ray Davis from the Heroes of 76 and the Sons of the American Revolution. After almost a decade as Master of Ceremonies, Bob Gachet continues his involvement for Memorial Day at Forest Meadows Military Garden of Honor on Monday, May 29th. Memorial Day to me is so significant because it gives us an awe. Uh, an opportunity to honor those who have sacrificed their lives for our freedom. And I consider that a great honor to be a part of any program that will honor that group who can no longer speak for themselves, but we can speak for them. The program featured Mayor Lauren Poe reading the poem, Declaration Day, Kim Smith, director of Alachua County Veteran Services, presenting a speech, and the Buholes High School Band playing taps. Please welcome Lauren Poe, the mayor of Gainesville. The poem I'm about to read is called Decoration Day, and it's, it's written by one of our American treasures, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Rest, comrades, rest and sleep. The thoughts of men shall be as sentinels to keep your rest from danger free. Your silent tents of green will deck with flagrant flowers. Yours has the suffering been. The memory shall be ours. Happy Memorial Day from the city of Gainesville. Thank you. It just gives me such a, a tremendous uh, uh, feeling of pride that I, I am able to be a part of that wonderful ceremony that brings honor the, to those who have sacrificed so much. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Director of Alachua County Veteran Services, Kim Smith. We are here to pay our respects and thank all of our American heroes for their sacrifices for us. We honor and respect the families who personally grieve the loss of their loved one. Your presence today shows that you truly appreciate and respect the meaning of today. Your mission is to continue to educate our future of the importance of service to our country, standing up for what is right and honoring and respecting the sacrifices of our greatest American heroes. God bless America. Thank you all for being here today. She She's done just a tremendous job of helping many veterans in our community to take advantage of those opportunities that they rightly earned. And uh, I'm so proud to know her, and so many have uh, benefited truly from her. Gachet was approached by families and leaders of the community to give their thanks and appreciation for his service. 
Some were meeting him for the first time, and others had already been acquainted with him. Gachet greeted everyone with humility and reverence. so much for coming. We appreciate you. Have a wonderful, blessed day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for The Point. Tune in next week for the return of Find Out Florida, as well as more stories from our Gainesville. Have a great weekend.